I have to be honest and confess that because it's been two weeks since we've been in John's Gospel, and because this is quite a difficult passage, I was tempted to skip it and move on to the feeding of the 5,000, because that's a nice wee story. But I decided to be brave and to be bold and very courageous, as I'm told in Joshua, and think a little bit about what this passage might be saying to us today. Though as I prepared and stumbled around the commentaries, I turned to those great heroes of our tradition, Calvin and Luther, and didn't get any comfort there because I find that when they were working through John's Gospel, they also skipped this section and go straight to the feeding of the 5,000. But it's there, it's in the Bible, it's loaded with meaning, and this morning you'll forgive me as I stumble and fumble my way through this little bit, or this long passage, which Philip has just read to us. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. A Christ to be gazed upon and adored, but not hated or heard. The Christmas story, properly understood, asserts that God is not best imagined as some all-powerful despot, but rather as a vulnerable and pathetic child. The word became flesh, John's gospel opens. Living, breathing, crying, loving, and in need of love. Tempted, hated, yet friend. Flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone. Yet despite the silence of the baby, it should be perfectly obvious to anyone who actually reads the Bible or the Christmas stories that the gospel regards the incarnation as challenging the existing order. The Christmas story is supposed to then be offensive. The sacred was no longer to be protected from the profane. Yet the baby in the manger now presides over a feel-good celebration. Among the carols and the candles and the Christmas lights, the word became flesh to shake us out of our comfort zones. The pregnant Mary anticipates the birth of Christ with fiery theology. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty. Born among farm laborers yet worshipped by kings, Christ announces an astonishing reversal of political and religious authority. The word became flesh and the religious leaders in our passage this morning didn't like how he looked because he came challenging everything they were clinging to. The word, this Christmas, becomes flesh and challenges how we think God ought to be. I'm going to take you back till when I was 16. I was finishing secondary school, and as you were preparing to leave secondary school, everyone was given a record of achievement. And the best thing about these records of achievements were you got a reference. Some one teacher would write what they thought of you, good or bad, as you then stepped out into that big bad world that was just waiting for you to come and transform it. But the trick when it came to these references of achievement were to get the right teacher. Because you not only wanted a teacher who knew you, 
but also one that liked you. And seeing how everybody in your class seemed to want the same handful of teachers, it was a bit of a lottery to see who you would get. Why are we so concerned about references? Age 16, 11 years on, and I think it's safe to say I've never used that reference that I fretted and worried and was so anxious about. But I have used other references in job interviews. And I suppose a reference allows people or prospective employers to know a little bit of who you are. They tell you what you've done and what you're qualified to do, and they help inform the interviewer if you're the right person for the job. In John chapter 5 then, verses 31 to 47, Jesus really is being asked for his references. The Jewish leaders are attacking Jesus because they demand to know by what right he is saying the things he is saying, and by what right he is doing the things he is doing. If you remember back to the last time we were in John's gospel, Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and that was a big no-no in the culture at the time. And the Jews believed that no one should work on the Sabbath, and they considered healing work. These leaders confront Jesus and demand to know what gave him the right to do what he has just done. Who gave him permission to do these things? And what do we hear? Well, we hear the voice of Jesus responding with, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. I have a testimony weightier than of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to finish and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Imagine Jesus in a job interview. He's sitting there on one side of the table, and the Jewish leaders are on the other. And the first question maybe might go something like this. Have you got any work experience? And maybe Jesus responds with, well, I've healed the sick, I've given sight to the blind, cast out demons, walked on water, fed thousands with virtually nothing, and preached about God all over Israel. And the Jewish leaders maybe respond with a comment such as, okay, that's great, but do you have any references? The Jewish leaders wanted to know who Jesus was. They wanted to know why he was in their area upsetting their way of doing things. Just who did this Jesus think he was? So Jesus tries to root around and pulls out his references, and he thinks they like John the Baptist, right? So John had been baptizing, calling people to God. His testimony would have been worth something, right? But no. And if John's testimony isn't good enough, what about the things that Jesus has actually done? Surely the work in verse 36 that Jesus has been doing, the work that the Father gave him to do, is testimony to who he is. Who else can do these things that Jesus is doing except the one who God sent? 
But even if the Jewish leaders in our reading this morning ignore both of these references, John the Baptist and the work that Jesus is actually doing, they can't ignore the next reference that Jesus pulls out. In verse 39, Jesus appeals to the Scriptures, the Scriptures that these leaders had been studying all their lives, the very Scriptures that were so foundational to everything that they believe. Jesus points to the Scriptures and says, these Scriptures are about me. They're all about me. The Jews didn't heed Christ. They would have had the Hebrew text tattooed on their foreheads, for they were experts in it, reading it, and studying. But it was their motivation for studying. It was their motivation for interpretation. And it was their motivation for interpretation, or for application, that was lacking. They spent their life poring over the Scriptures. They were so entrenched within Judaism And then when God puts on flesh and comes into their very town, they rebuke him for not conforming to their rules and for not being like them. The word became flesh and came challenging how we thought God ought to be. Jesus says to them, here I am standing right in front of you and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Why are we so obsessed with what people think about us? Why are we so concerned to fit in? Why do we so readily submit to the tyranny of they? As that voice of a generation, and please forgive me for this reference, as that voice of a generation, Billy Piper said, why do you always hang around in crowds? Because we want to. And maybe that's it. Maybe we enjoy hanging around in crowds because they validate us, because we feel safe, because we feel, well, as long as we're in this crowd, everyone's like us, so it doesn't really cause me any upset. Well, in our reading this morning, Jesus speaks directly into that situation. The Jewish leaders loved hanging out in crowds. The Jewish leaders loved being right and believed that they probably were the only ones who could be right. But Jesus speaks again. I'm not interested in your crowd approval. And do you know why? Because I know you and your crowds. And I know that love, especially God's love, is not on your working agenda. How do you expect to get anywhere with God if you keep jockeying for position with each other? The word became flesh and humbled himself. The Word became flesh and became the lowest of the low. Yet the the leaders in our story, and maybe even us today, enjoy clamoring and climbing up the social and work ladder. Yet how many of us would be willing to follow the lead of Jesus and strive at all costs to be counter-cultural? The thing was, that Jesus became flesh in the real place in a real time and was pulling a generation forward. They'd had the teaching of the prophets, but yet things weren't going right. And the word becomes flesh, and for some, even that wasn't good enough either. Ask yourself a question this morning. Is God progressive 
with a more inspiring vision for the future than we could ever imagine? Or is God back there, behind, endlessly in the past, trying to get us to return to how it was back there? The religious leaders we have shared in our reading this morning were definitely stuck in a history lesson, reliving the glory days, not knowing that the glory of heaven was actually in their midst. They were behind, back there, endlessly in the past, trying to get us to return to how it's always been. And the Word became flesh and came challenging how we thought God ought to be. Rob Bell, in his new book, What We Talk About When We Talk About God, shares the following story. In the spring of 2008, I was in Seattle speaking at an event with the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu and, another, and, a, and, a, and a crowd of other spiritual leaders. The purpose of the event was to teach, how, so it was to teach compassion to younger generations so the world will be more and more a peaceful less violent place. I was sitting there inspired and encouraged and challenged, taking it all, all in and looking around the room at the extraordinary people from all over the world. Suddenly, someone leaned to me and said, there's protesters outside the building. Protesters? Who could seriously think that peace was a bad idea? I asked who, were, who was protesting, and I was told it was a group of Christians. He says, Bell goes on to say, I tell you all about that event because God was there. At that event, as God has always been, present with all humanity, leading and calling and inviting and drawing and pulling all of humanity into greater and greater love, joy, justice, equality, and peace. Bell points out then that it is possible to be very religious and very committed and yet be working against the new thing that God is doing. The religious leaders in our reading this morning for all their reading were very committed and they were very religious, yet they seemed to be missing out on the very incarnation of their teachings because God was doing something they didn't expect. Like the protesters in the story, they're on the sidewalk missing out on what God is up to on the inside of the building. While in the passage, we see God is doing what God has always done, meeting people in a real place at a real time in history and calling them forward, calling them into greater peace, wholeness, and well-being, even if, and especially if, that involves healing someone on the Sabbath, which seems to go against all the cultural norms of the day. So this morning, as we come to this passage, if we are to be Jesus' followers, and if we are to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, we need to step up. We need to stop focusing on the acceptable ways of doing things. We need to stop focusing on the sterile and clean ways of outreach. Because this Christmas we remember a creator who humbled himself and a heaven that reached out and found itself being born in the mess 
of a manger, among the animals and their dung with a teenage girl screaming in agony. Heaven reached out, and we have cleaned it up for the sake of a Christmas card. So if we take this challenge of Jesus seriously, if we're up for this challenge, where is it going to take us? What does it call us to do? Where will we end up? Well, that's the thing. The possibilities are endless. The chances are scary, yet revolutionary. The call is challenging, yet invigorating. invigorating. Is the church ready to be unsettled by a God who turns up as the religious don't expect him? Is the church ready to be forced from the comfort of a padded and heated pew into the coldness and dampness of our streets? Is the church ready to take the prayers we pray from the safety of inside a building out into the messiness of our world? Are we this Advent? Are we today ready to have our lives interrupted? Are we ready to have our stereotypes challenged, our hands dirtied, our lives changed? Or do we want to be like the religious in the reading this morning, clinging to an old-time religion, clinging to the certainty that actually we've got God all figured out, heads in books, yet unaware when we meet him face to face in the needs of a person? Where this morning, where for you and where for me is the place you least want to go? Because that's exactly where you need to be. Not just be there, but be there with your sleeves rolled up. Be there without the safety of protective clothing and gloves. Be there without a get-out-of-jail-free option. Because the Creator this Christmas found Himself in abject poverty. Because the Creator found Himself on the floor in the back end of nowhere. Find Himself on the streets. In the beginning, there was chaos. And the word became flesh and brought even more chaos with him because he turned everything upside down. Oh God, today, let us never settle for religion, but rather keep us focused on the living, breathing reality that you are. Not words on a page, but word made flesh. Not an idea, but a reality. Not the safe option, but the only option. Not the certainty of a theory, but in the doubt of the working it out this Christmas, as we long for the comfort and cleanness of the familiar, interrupt us just as you did all those years ago. Interrupt us and cause us never to be the same. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning realizing that when you came to earth, you did interrupt things. You interrupted people. You interrupted places. You interrupted history. And you interrupted lives. This Advent, as we think about your incarnation, challenge us as to where you would have us go. Where do we need to incarnate you as we go about life on a daily basis? Father, it could be scary. In fact, it probably will be scary if we really mean these prayers. But we pray that you would give us the strength and the courage and the boldness to follow your lead, not only in our homes, not only in our workplaces, but across this world for your sake. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.